Good morning. How are y'all? Good. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're continuing on our passage in 2 Thessalonians talking about work. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the privilege of us coming before you this morning to hear your word preached. Thanks for the privilege of us being able to come and sing your praises Extol your name and glorify you, Lord. Thanks for our catechism teachers. Thanks for our kids, Lord. May they learn the truths about the gospel at an early age, and may they respond in faith and trust in you. Lord, be with us now as we look into your word. Let us have ears to hear for your glory. Amen. All right, if I asked most of you uh, what instrument I played, if you have been here for, for more than a few years, you'd probably know that the answer would be the bass. Um, but before I played the bass and before I played the guitar, which I led uh, worship at the junior high um, youth group for many years, before I played either of those instruments, uh, many, many years ago, my very first instrument was the clarinet. And... I uh, played it all the way from, I think it was sixth grade on up through high school, even uh, played in college for one year in the marching band at Mizzou. Um, and I was pretty good at the clarinet. Uh, when I entered into high school as a freshman, um, they had two bands because we had so many people. So they put the freshman, uh, the freshman in the lower band, and then you could uh, potentially work your way up. There was no freshman uh, in the upper band, but I wanted to be in that upper band. And they had a, a path for you to get there. Um, basically, they seated you. Um, you know, you ever, you ever wonder when you go to like a concert, like, hey, why are they seated the way they're seated? Like, why is the first person at the end of the chair, and why is the other person like at the other end? So, I mean, they're they're normally seating you um, according to like the the ability that you have. So, anyway, I quickly worked my way up to the first chair in the lower band, but I wanted to get into that upper band, and and there was a, a pretty a pretty good gap. So, I challenged. What that, it was called a challenge, and you would challenge the person, the, basically the lowest seat in the, in the higher band. You would challenge them, and then you'd come and play um, and perform in front. Just, it was just you 
um, and, the, and, the, um, and the director. And then the other person would come and play just them and the director. And some of it would be like sight reading. He'd give you a piece you had never seen before and you had to play it. Some of it was just like basic stuff like scales. And then some of it was the music we were currently learning. So anyway, I ended up getting into that upper band as a freshman. I was really good. And over the next couple of years, got all the way to the second chair, right? So the first chair is the top. And here's the thing, though. <clears throat> I knew that I was, without a doubt, the second best clarinet <laughs> in that high school, all right? And that the gap between me and that third chair, it was a sizable gap that I didn't think that person could, could challenge me and have a chance. I mean, that was just the truth of the matter. However, I knew the gap between me and that first chair was a sizable gap that I probably couldn't bridge. And so what did I do? I just kind of coasted, right? Like, I, I knew that the third chair couldn't really challenge me, and I knew that I really couldn't give much of a challenge to that first chair, and I was okay with the second chair. I mean, that's pretty good. So I just coasted for a number of years. All this talent, all this ability, and I just let mediocrity get the best of me. So I had the talent, but I really didn't do much work with the talent that I had. And that's one of the things we're going to be looking at today uh, when we get into the Word, is that we see a couple things here that Paul is directing us when it comes to our approach, to whatever work we've been given. Our work is going to look different in a school setting than it looks in a home setting, than it looks in an in a employee uh, outside the house work setting. But, but the bottom line is, we're all called to work. Okay, that work might look different in different situations, but we're all called to work. So look with me at verse 7, and, and there's just a simple imperative that we can get from this verse. He says, For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. So he's saying we weren't idle. What, what is he saying? Hey, we were busy. We were working when we were among you. So he says, and he says this a, a number of times throughout the New Testament, he says to imitate him. Why can he say that? Because he, he's a great example of who Christ was. So even in 1 Corinthians, he's like, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Here he's saying how you ought to imitate us. What's the idea there? Get to work. When you think about the image of your mind, in your mind of Paul, I mean, what, what idea would you, would you think of? I mean, he's a worker, right? I mean, he's a worker. He's, his, he's busy working, and so then he's telling us, hey, guess what? Get to work. And work comes in all shapes and sizes. A mom's work looks different than a dad's. The employee's work looks different than the employer's. The student's work looks different than the teacher's. But guess what? They're all called to work. And it's interesting. On this particular issue here, two different times in this passage, what does Paul draw attention to? That this issue is serious enough, this issue of idleness, that it was serious enough to warrant church discipline. So Paul had a theology of church discipline. Look what he says in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And then look down at verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person 
and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. So it's, it's a serious issue, serious enough that cutting off the relationship with the person is what Paul is calling for. Now, church discipline, it's a forgotten practice in the church today. Uh, people say it's not kind, it's not loving. Christ would never do that. Uh, friends, brothers and sisters, Christ commanded that. Like Matthew 18, right? He commanded church discipline. So Jesus would most certainly do whatever he himself commands. So here's the thing. Let's not put ourselves in a position of thinking we know better than the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give us God's word. Let's not put ourselves in a position of thinking we know better than Jesus himself. Look at Matthew 18 just briefly, because I want to make sure you all know this. Verse 15, Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's Jesus telling us how to walk out what we would call church discipline. Now hopefully, everyone in some form or fashion in every church that considers itself a true church is practicing at least the first couple steps. Hopefully, we are regularly being open to letting people come and talk to us about issues or sin they see in our life. We should welcome that, okay? Some of us don't. That's not good. We should welcome people coming and pointing out graciously our sin to us. But we see that the next step is, depending on the, the severity of the sin, to go with a couple people to talk to that person about the sin. Then we understand that if, if it's gotten to that point, it's probably pretty serious, right? You get other people involved, it's some serious sin. And, and the key is this, when it comes to church discipline, it's always, is the person that's being confronted uh, showing any signs of repentance? Are they walking in a manner of repentance? Why would you go and take two or three? Because they haven't changed. The first time, the first one-on-one, -on -one, there was no change. Why would you go from two or three to telling it to the church? There's no change. There's no repentance. <clears throat> so every step, what you're hoping and praying for is not to shame the person, not to bash the person. You're hoping for repentance. You're concerned about them. Church discipline is a very, very loving thing to do. So here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's really not giving us like a full lay, laying it out of, of how that would work, but Jesus makes it, makes it pretty clear for us. And what I see sometimes um, is, is we can have pride in all sorts of areas of our life, and I use this term, I've used it before, called article theologians article theologians. It's where you read an article, and then after like two to three minutes, you think you're an expert on that subject, you know? Like you're dealing with some, something, usually it's like some health issue, and everyone thinks they got the answer because they like read some article on Yahoo News like three weeks ago, all right? But I see it a lot when, when it comes to people talking about different theology and talking about different aspects of the Bible or what the Word of God says. Here's the thing. Um, you look foolish 
to those who really understand that subject well. Okay, listen, I'm not an expert in, in many things, all right? I will readily admit that. But I am pretty proficient when it comes to the Word of God. And so um, I want to encourage all of us uh, to not be article theologians. Like, it just reeks of pride. It reeks of pride. Show a little humility. If you don't know about a subject, uh, just admit it, okay? Now, I get sometimes someone's talking to you, and you're just like kind of nodding your head and trying to act like you know a little bit about, but when, when it, it's a little bit different when, when you start talking on a matter of which you know very little about. Um, if you don't know about a subject, just admit it. No one expects you to know it all. And when you act like you know it all, you look prideful and foolish. Okay, only one being knows it all, and, and his name is God. So when you act like you know it all, you're acting like God. Um, if this is you, like, then that means you're filled with pride. And some people, it just reeks out of their pores. And you need to repent if that's the case with you. But here's what I want to encourage you. You know, if you just read your Bible daily, two to three chapters, read your Bible daily, two to three chapters. A lot of the, the foolish nonsense out there that people talk about, different unbiblical worldviews, you'd be able to spot that stuff just like that. Because you'd be training your mind according to the Word of God, and you'd be more sharp in spotting the foolishness and the falseness that is presented to us daily. So Paul is talking about work, and he frames it in the negative of not being idle. Idleness is the opposite of what we are commanded. Think about Paul. He not only worked with his mind, he worked with his hands. Even Jesus worked with his hands. Before he was a rabbi, what was he? He was a carpenter. I think that's cool in both cases because it kind of is like a blessing for the more blue-collar work, and it's also a blessing for the more white-collar work. Like, work pleases the Lord, and he was willing and did both. Paul, this great mind, sharp gentleman, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as we read in Philippians, was willing to work with his hands. But God doesn't want us idle. He doesn't want us to be couch potatoes. He doesn't want us to be fat and lazy. Friends, we're invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And if you're a believer, you have a seat at that table, right? But some of you are acting like you're already sitting at that table, feasting and chowing down. You're chilling, you're eating, you're vegging, you're, you're bumming. Like, there's a time for that. But it's not the majority of the week. One day of rest is the pattern that's set, right? One day. One day. Okay, not five days, not four days, not three days, not two days. One day. One day is the pattern. So the first point is get to work. The, the second point that we see here is don't seek handouts. Or you can put it a different way. Don't be a leech. Proverbs 30, it says the leech has daughters. You know how many daughters the leech has? Two. They have names. It's the same name. Give and give. 
That's what it says, Proverbs 30, verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Have you ever seen someone uh, make friends with those who are rich just because they're rich? Hoping for a handout of some sorts. I've seen it. It's not pretty. We are called to work. There's no free ride. So don't seek handouts. Don't be a leech. I remember uh, years ago a lady called um, our church asking for help. And so I told her I'd call her back. And so it, I, it took like a day or two, but I called her back. And she's like, oh, oh, we just, uh, she was looking for some financial help. And, and when I called her back, she's like, oh, oh, we just decided to, to cash in some of our CDs. Uh, we, don't, we don't need any help. I was like thinking, cash in your CDs? Like, I don't even have any CDs. Okay, I do have CDs, but they like spin and got music on them, okay? <laughs> but I don't even have any CDs to cash in. You're just going to cash, like, she had resources. Okay, resources available to her but seeking a handout. So Paul here, I mean, he's dealing with sinful work habits, or you might, you might say sinful non-work habits, because if you're doing these, these sins that he talks about, it means you're not working. And one sin branches out to others. If you think of like the sin of idleness, where does that end up branching out to? You end up with procrastination. You end up with laziness. Like, I don't feel like it. Well, like, okay, you don't feel like it, and... Like, who cares if you don't feel like it? Like, are you really forced to submit to your feelings? You know? I mean, are you? Are you forced to submit to your feelings? No. I mean, what if your boss said, oh, I, I, I don't feel like paying you this week? What would you say? I mean, what do you want him to do? You want him to just go along with his feelings? Now, you'd like the paycheck. I get it. So he's, Paul here is dealing with idleness, which branches out to procrastination, laziness. And then look what it leads to in verse 11. He says, and he repeats it again, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Again, the idea is, is I mean, there's times where you might hit periods of you're not being very productive. We probably have all been at that point. But notice how he phrases it here, walk in idleness. This is characteristic of who they are. They walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So idleness leads to all sorts of different sin, and, and that's kind of how sin is, right? Sin comes in, in, in clusters. <clears throat> it's like, you know, it's like a, a, a thing of grapes or whatever. It's like a cluster, you know? You don't usually just get one. So you get laziness, and then you end up being a busybody, going around causing all sorts of trouble. Listen, if any of you, when it comes to work, if any of you deal with any of these things, really, you should read the book of Proverbs because it is replete with all sorts of information regarding work, regarding the lazy man, regarding the dangers to avoid. Um, it's there, and there's some good stuff. We won't look at it because of time. But when we're talking about laziness, like, and I'll just be honest, like scrolling through Facebook or Instagram for large portions of time, that's laziness. Sitting in front of a TV mindlessly for hours and hours at a time, that's laziness. I mean, you're avoiding work that needs to be done. Now, I'll grant you there's a difference between getting a little downtime and have something consume your time. We even get lazy with our theology sometimes. I, I've seen this term used a lot. I saw it on an ad the other day on Facebook. <laughs> Wasn't scrolling aimlessly, though. 
but I saw this ad for a church, and it said, not your grandma's church. Has anyone seen an ad like that or similar? Maybe they're just throwing it to me because they, they see like, I got, like I'm listed as a pastor or something. But think about the message that communicates. That's some horrible theology, by the way. Because of the message that communicates. Like, oh, the other churches, it's outdated. And what does that say to Grandma? You're outdated. So it's like they're saying, oh, we're doing it better. We're doing it right. Move out of the way, Grandma, because we know how to do it. And what does that communicate to Grandma? What does that communicate to the elder, uh, the elder people, the elderly? Grandma doesn't belong. Right? If it's not your grandma's church, then it's not for grandma. It's for the young, the hip, the cool. And what does that do? It disconnects the past from the present. Is there unity in that? No. It also fuels the yeah, forget them attitude, which, guess what? The youth, they don't need that fueled any more than it already is. Okay? They don't need to be encouraged in any way to look down on the elderly. They usually, sadly, do a pretty good job on their own. It communicates that newer is better. Older needs to move on. Listen, the church needs all generations. They all have a place in the church, and they all have work to do in the church. And the church without grandparents is sick. It's the truth. And a church with only grandparents is sick. But listen, it's gray hair, not a man bun, that God declares the crown of glory. Right? Who are we supposed to rise in the presence of? The aged and the wise, not the young and the hip. And even think about Jesus and his commands. Think about Paul and James, his commands to look after the orphan, and the widow. It's the weak who are most worthy of special welcome, not the strong. It's the helpless who most merit our attention, not the affluent. I mean, imagine what some of these churches' response would be to 1 Timothy chapter 5, dealing with widows. And they can't even walk that out because they don't even have any, anywhere close to it. So let's not try to make the gospel into something other than it should be. And sometimes what happens is we want cutting edge. We want, we want to be cutting edge. And then, you know, it's always about uh, the, the new iPhone. You've got to have the new iPhone because it's got, you know, four camera whatever lenses instead of three. Like, I just thought you needed one. But it's cutting edge. You want to do something? You want to be cutting edge? Well, if you want to do something unusual, strange, and crazy, like preach the gospel. And then live it out. Because that's cutting edge. Alright? It always has been and always will be. <clears throat> you want to be on the cutting edge of technology? Who cares? I want to be on the cutting edge of Christ-centered living. That's where I want to be. So all those other things, the sins of the flesh that he mentions with idleness that lead to other things of laziness and procrastination and being a busybody, we toss them out. That's works of the flesh. Paul tells us how we're supposed to be in our manner towards work. It's my last point. Finally, we're supposed to work hard. Look what he says in verse 8. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with 
toil and labor. Toil and labor. Not just toil, okay? He's making a point here. Not just labor. He's making a point here. Toil and labor. What did he do? We worked. We worked. No. He didn't just work. We worked night and day. Okay? That's a lot of work going on. Toiling and laboring night and day. I mean, do you get the idea from reading that he just like worked nine to five every day? No. You get the idea he was leisurely about his work? No. He worked, but he didn't just work. He worked hard. There was the toil. There was the labor. It was pretty constant. He had a task given before him. Friends, when, when it comes to our work, we should work hard and we should aim to be the best we can. Here's what one theologian said in regards to our jobs. Do your absolute best. Be the best employee, the best manager, the best associate you can be. Be known as the most honest, the most humble, most ethical, the most competent person in your field. And do all that not to advance your own career, but to advance God's fame. If you desperately want to see all of your coworkers saved, but you have a habit of not showing up to work on time, people will be annoyed and your witness will be compromised and God will not be honored. There are already enough people like that. Don't be one of them. It's the same idea of working hard that we see encapsulated in Colossians chapter 3. Turn there briefly because I want you to see it. So he's going, in, in, in verse 18, he starts by going through different rules for the different stations people have in life. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those are who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, so that this is the context, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, so as you're doing those different things, as the wives are submitting, as the husbands are loving, as the children are obeying, as the fathers are not provoking, as the bondservants are obeying, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So he's not just saying, just like in the other passage, he's not just saying work, he's saying that, but he's saying more than that. Here it's like work heartily, similar to the idea of maybe toiling and laboring, a little bit different, because literally the idea here is working at it from the soul. Like the idea being you're working from an inward principle, not outward compulsion. You're doing it because you want to, because you want to please the Lord, and wherever he places you. So if we're asked to do work, regardless of what the work is, we should be willing to do it, heartily, cheerfully, willingly. Sometimes we're asked to do a task, and we do it because we feel we have no option. We can't say no. If, even if that's the case, we can still do that with a willing heart, not begrudgingly. Think of the intensity with which we do something at times. How much are we into it? That's part of the heartily. Are you really working? Or are you just kind of there? You just kind of show up. You just kind of go through the motions. You just do the little you can to get a paycheck. Second, it speaks to attitude. I've seen people efficient in their work, 
They can, they can, you can be a hard worker, but your attitude can still stink, right? They do what's required, they do it well, but it's obvious they have an attitude. No, the Lord wants not just external, but also internal. In all areas of our life, work included. So, work hard. Work hard all the time. Here in Colossians it says, whatever you do, so whatever the task, whatever the work, night and day Paul toiled. So we work hard when we don't want to. We work hard for everyone. We work hard even when we're not the best. Leonard Bernstein, well-known conductor and composer, guess what he said the hardest instrument to play in his orchestra was? The second violin. Because the second violin plays the harmony. It doesn't get to play the melody. Everyone wants that first, to play the melody. But if no one plays the second part, there's no harmony. And our work is not done for men. I mean, we might have bosses, we might have people we report to, we might have a team of bosses. But ultimately, we're doing it for the Lord. Listen, this should free you up to give everything, knowing you can't fail God. I mean, if you're doing what he calls you to do, if you're giving it because he's the one that you're doing it for, then who cares what impossible task your boss has set before you that you know you can't meet? Because you're not doing it for him. You might have a boss that is impossible to please. Some bosses will never be happy with the work you do. Okay, you can work and work and work, toil and toil and toil. That's okay. Ultimately, you're not trying to please him. You're trying to please God. We don't want to be men-pleasers. We want to be God-pleasers. And if we are striving and working in such a way to please him, that's what he is after. I remember years ago, I was working for my first boss, uh, and we were working on this house, painting it. And it, we were painting it the nastiest dark yellow I'd ever seen. Okay. I mean, it was, it was just nasty. It was, the house was nasty. The color was nasty. And I was just like, man, let's just get this thing done and you know, throw some paint on there and get out of here. <clears throat> and then the Lord was like, hey, is this the approach you would take if this was my house? And so I had this picture of, in my mind of like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act as if this is the Lord's house. And as if this nasty color yellow, I'm going to pretend it's really gold. <laughs> Listen, taking that approach, a lot of times that day I had to go back and hit different spots that I had missed because I was like, man, I'm not doing that great of a job. But it affected how I approached the task that God had given me. Our service is ultimately to Jesus. It's for him. What we do, if done right, it glorifies him. So we're not doing it for others. Earlier in Colossians, uh, it says we're, we're not doing it by way of eye service as people pleasers. Okay? If you ever start working a little harder when, when the boss shows up? Like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, being, you're doing what it says here, the eye service. Oh, you, you know he can see you, right? You're being a people pleaser. Maybe you're, you stop texting a little less. Maybe, you, you know, you quickly slip the phone away. 
Like, why? Like, if your boss wouldn't want you doing that, why would you be doing it when he's gone? Why does the boss have to be around for you to be on top of your game, for you to be performing at your best? Don't do it for eye service. You want him to see you at the top of your game, but once he leaves, you go back to normal. Do it as Christ would have us do. Do it unto him. When we think about the workplace, for believers in many areas, and it's becoming more and more, the deck is stacked against you. It really is in the workplace. Uh, Carl Truman, well-known writer, professor, this is what he said, one might be a brilliant biochemist or have a profound knowledge of Minoan civilization, but any deviation from cultural orthodoxy on race, sexuality, or even pronouns will prove more significant in hiring and tenure processes than considerations such as scholarly competence and careful research. And even when you think about it today, even in the the brand and flavor of of Christianity with Christians, today countless apologists, they insist, think about this, they insist that a rejection of Christian sexual, uh, sexual morality is actually a fulfillment of the Christian imperative of love. Like, reject what the Bible says about sexual morality. And that's the loving thing to do. That's what people are arguing. What I'm saying, back to my, one of my orig- earlier points, is, I mean, just two or three chapters a day helps you understand the foolishness in a statement like that. It girds your mind for action. The other thing is, and it's sad, but we need to be developing a theology of getting fired. Because there's some lines we have to be willing not to cross. There has to be a point where we will not lay down our convictions at all. We can't compromise. We can't say things that aren't true. If we're going to be salt and light, it will come at a cost. The good news is Christ walks with us in any situation. I had a procedure done a couple months back, and <clears throat> the doctor was getting everything ready, and he was asking questions and everything. And um, I mean, he's kind of—I mean, you know—the the procedure. You're a little bit nervous or whatever, and he's kind of got the upper hand and everything. He started asking some questions, and I started answering, and is asking. Uh, different things and and what I do and so I was sharing with the pastor I'm telling you if there's a such thing as like a power dynamic in a doctor's office it like switched like instantly as soon as I started talking about the gospel there's a couple other nurses in there like the room got quiet and uh he was ready to get on with the procedure (laughs) but it's just interesting like sometimes it's like we think we have we 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 don't have like I don't know we, we just we downplay the power of the gospel that we have. We downplay the privilege that we have of being able to share that. And we don't realize that there is a power that comes with the gospel. Like, we know it, but we don't know it. All right? And so here I am. I'm just, all I'm doing, I wasn't even, you know, firing away with any tough questions or or statements. I'm just talking about, you know, what's God been doing in my life. But even that, like, 
this you know, high-profile surgeon about to do this procedure is, is unsettled by a little, little religious talk. Guess what? People need to be a little bit unsettled. We need to unsettle people a little bit. Not, not to switch any power dynamics or anything, but because their very soul is at stake. And the Lord puts us into different situations. I heard of a lady a couple weeks ago who had uh, COVID and was, it was pretty serious and was in the hospital. And she was sharing that she shared with every single nurse and doctor that came into that room. She was like, man, if I'm going to be in, trapped in this hospital bed, then I'm going to make the most of my opportunities. Guess what? She's a patient, right? They can't ignore her. True? Here she is, using, using the area that God has placed her in for that time to be a witness for him. Christ walks with us in each of those situations. Sometimes, really, the toughest part with sharing our faith is just, is just opening our mouth a little bit for that first couple seconds. I mean, you don't have to be bold for 15 minutes or 5 minutes or however long the conversation is going to be. Think about it. You really just have to be bold for about five seconds to start that conversation. Once the door is open, you've gotten past the hard part. Five seconds of boldness is really all it takes to open that door, ask that question, make that statement. Listen, what are we trying to accomplish with our work? Yeah, we're trying to, in, in, a, in, a, in a lesser sense, we're trying to accomplish all sorts of, of different things. Feeding our families, providing for them. Yes, those are good and great things. But what are we trying to accomplish with our work our, our heart, with wherever God places us, including the places of work, is that we're evangelists and apologists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. Okay, we're called to be witnesses. When, when, when Jesus said in Matthew 20, you know, going to the ends of the earth, like the, your work was included in one of those places. And, and to the ends of the earth. And that just doesn't include mission trips you go on once a year. No, to, I mean, your work, it's included there. So we need to be evangelists and apologists. We, we don't need to be social justice warriors. We need to be evangelists and apologists. There's a difference between the two, by the way. Okay, one sees themselves as bearers of a message of eternal hope and grace. That's the apologist. That's the evangelist. The other sees themselves as self-appointed agents of retribution. That's the truth. Social justice warrior, there's no way to atone for your sins. You can never do enough. It will never be enough. And ironically, there's a sliver of truth in that when it comes to the gospel. Because you can't ever do enough. But the gloriousness of the true gospel, which those social justice warriors don't have, they need the gospel, but they don't have it. The gloriousness of the true gospel is what? Jesus did enough. That's the part they're missing the crucial part, Jesus. Yes, you can never do enough, but guess what? Jesus did enough. He secured what you couldn't secure. Your salvation, Jesus earned it for you. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't get it. There's nothing you could do. Jesus did it for you. He secured it. So, yeah, you can't atone for your sins and earn your way to heaven. Jesus atoned for your sins open the way for you to get back to the Father. You can't do enough good works to somehow earn favor in God's sight. You can't. No amount of good works. But Jesus lived the perfect life, died the perfect death. Why? So that you could be forgiven of those sins. They could be atoned for. How? Through Jesus. 
through his death. He atoned so that you didn't have to atone. So trust in him. He's the one that offers salvation. He's the one that we're preaching about. He's the one that we take with us into the marketplace, the marketplace of work, the marketplace of ideas, the entire marketplace, okay? Even into the Walmart greeter. They need the gospel. Wherever we're going, we're walking and working in a way that seeks to glorify Jesus in all things, in all areas, and in all ways. It is to him that we do it unto. Who cares? Who cares what your um, annual report, you got to sit down with your boss and <clears throat> your annual review? You want, you want positives on that and negatives from Jesus? Now, if you got to choose, choose the positives from Jesus. Who cares about that annual report if you're walking in a Christ-like manner, if you're working as hard as you can, if you're doing it heartily, if you're trying to be the best worker that you possibly can be and you are being the salt and light? I'm more concerned about Jesus' checklist than any boss's checklist. Okay, Here's his checklist right here. That's how we want to live. That's how we want to walk. Take the opportunities that we get presented to us as the Lord allows, and seize them, open our mouths, speak. Whatever work, wherever we're placed, whatever we're doing, and we do it unto him for his glory. Let's pray. Father, let us be workers wherever we've been placed in all sorts of different jobs, Sometimes just for a short season, sometimes for many, many years, sometimes for an entire career. But wherever you place us, for short or for long, let us work unto you. Let us be good witnesses for you. Let people see our, our manner of life, our work ethic, and know that something is different. Let us be those, God, that are truly the best in the various areas you place us. And bless, Lord, I pray for each of the workers here, and everyone is a worker, I pray your blessing upon them in their different fields of work, whether it's at home, whether it's at school, uh, whether it's out, outside the home, wherever it might be, God, I pray your blessing upon them that you'd bless them that they'd be fruitful at their work, that they put their hand to the plow and not look back, that you'd give them favor in the sight of men, Lord, not for their own gain, but for the gain of the gospel. I pray you'd protect people, Lord, as they speak your truths in the marketplace. Protect their jobs, God. But even if they should lose it to know that the body would rally around them, and support them and walk with them in all ways. And thank you, Lord, for your son and for his work, a work that's finished, finished on the cross, sealed by the grave. Through that work, we can be made right with you. And I pray for anyone here who might not know you, that today would be the day they trust in the finished work of your son. They turn from their sins and turn to you, and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.